This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. World Refugee Day is observed every year on the 20th of June to celebrate the strength and courage of people who have been forced to flee their home country to escape conflict or persecution. But what exactly does it mean to be a refugee? What are the challenges that they go through? I'm Dashan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Wael Karsifi. He's a refugee and a journalist based in Malaysia. Welcome to the show, Wael. Hey Dashan, thank you so much for having me. Well, perhaps you can start by telling me a little bit about yourself. How many years ago did you leave Syria, which is your home country, and why? Well, I, I left Syria back in 2017. And, you know, just like thousands of my fellow Syrians, we had to leave the country because of the war and the violence that was happening. And, you know, it's just there was no hope for a lot of young people like me back then in Syria. So, yeah, that was the main reason I left my country. I left in 2017 and came to Malaysia. And since then, I've been living here in Kuala Lumpur, working and, you know, getting on. And how, how, how old were you when you left Syria? I was uh, 23. 23, right. Yes. Um, this might sound like a bit of a, you know, odd tangent, right? But what are your passions and, and hobbies? What do you like to do for fun? First of all, my passion is, is writing. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that I... I enjoyed doing since I was a kid. You know, I always in school, I think it's the same in Malaysia. You have these classes that, you know, they, they ask you to write about the topic. Right. And, you know, you can get as creative as you want. And that's something I really enjoyed since I was a kid. But I mean, aside from prof, from my professional writing, I enjoy music. I enjoy anime. I'm a big fan of anime too. Right. What's your favorite anime? Oh, well, that's a tough question. Maybe One Punch Man, I would say. (laughs) Right, nice. (laughs) And yeah, that's it. I'm I'm a big fan of sports too, football. Uh Did you always um, dream of becoming a journalist? Is that what you wanted to do growing up in Syria as well? I mean, it wasn't as clear as that in my Mm -hmm. mind when I was younger. I just loved writing. And uh, I mean, yeah, as a kid, I, I always wanted to write a TV show when I grew up. Like, you know, I used to watch nice. all those TV shows and I remember I never knew what how a TV show is made. But then I watched this little documentary about how, you know, TV shows are made, like sitcoms and all. And yeah, and I remember I was maybe 12 or something like that. And I was like, yeah, I want to do that. I want to write a TV show one day. And then, you know, as I grew up, I started reading more journalism and I started, you know, being more political as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I, I, I realized that journalism is a, is a very important part of society. It's something that I want to do. The reason I'm asking this question is because, you know, uh, while people tend to look at refugees and the countries they come from as sort of this homogenous entities, right? Um, people tend to, you know, put them in, uh, you know, as if they are one block and say, you know, those refugees, those refugees. But yeah. refugees aren't a homogenous group, are you? I absolutely 100% agree that there's there's this dehumanization of refugees that has been happening, especially in Malaysia for the past past decade, maybe. I mean, maybe less, but yes, there's there's a huge dehumanization stigma that has been 
inflicted on refugees for a long time. And yeah, refugees are always seen as, as a group, as, you know, as a group that has similar ideas and similar uh, ideologies. And that's something as a journalist, I always try to show in my work that refugees are just as individual and as complex as everyone else. And they have very different ideas about things. They have very different political ideas and religious ideas. And there's no way you can box all refugees in one in one place. And how do refugees usually get from point A, which is their home country, to point B, the country in which they are um, hoping to seek asylum, um, especially when it comes to refugees traveling to Malaysia? Well, I mean, if we're talking about other countries in general, I mean, refugees leave their countries in different ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, the most common one that has been happening in the last couple of years because of the you know, the war that was happening in Syria and in Myanmar, people were escaping their countries through the sea. And, and it's a very dangerous way. A lot of people lost their lives in their search for, you know, for safety from the wars and the violence that was happening in their in their homelands. And I mean, refugees, again, it's not just war. Sometimes refugees, people become refugees because of discrimination against them because of, you know, color or religion or even like gender-based discrimination or sexual identity discrimination. And there are, you know, tens of reasons why someone is refugee. And I, I believe all of these reasons are just as valid as the others. And, and you know, some people, sometimes they leave their countries without, you know, the, the plan to become refugees. Sometimes you go to study somewhere and then suddenly war starts in your country and you can't go back and you have no other way or an option and you become a refugee. So it's not always a decision to become a refugee. It's it's just a decision to live and survive. And that's that's what drives most refugees to, to run from their countries. But, you know, talking about the ways that people arrive in Malaysia, mm-hmm. I mean, as we, most of us are aware, you know, refugees from Myanmar had no option but to escape through the sea to come to Malaysia. And, you know, there was a big wave of, refugees back in 2015, 2014. And and even until now, you know, we still hear news about boats arriving on Malaysian coasts and, you know, how how the Malaysian government is pushing those boats back to the sea. And there are other ways, like, like for, for example, a lot of Syrians come to Malaysia through, you know, flights normally. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they come here and they have no other option but to stay here and register themselves with UNHCR and other organizations to seek asylum in Malaysia because they can't go back to their home countries. And it's not just for Syrians, Yemenis and Afghans and Iranians and many, many other nationalities. You know, they have no option but to leave their countries. Talk to me about how treacherous um, that journey can be because it's not so much um, like you know buying a ticket to and getting on a cruise ship and and coming coming go you know go traveling to another country um you know often more often than not there is a lot of risks and, and, and dangers that the refugees are putting themselves in just to travel by boat to another country right absolutely i mean i mean there's there's a big disinformation about refugees especially the rohingya refugees in, mm-hmm. in malaysia and a lot of people say that they come here you know they come here to be with their other family members. They come here for money and opportunities. And that is absolutely misinformation. And sometimes it's a deliberate disinformation just, you know, to inflict hate against and xenophobia towards refugees. 
I mean, the journey can be really, really dangerous, and it's it's a life-threatening journey, especially, you know, as a Syrian, I know I have many family members and friends. I lost two friends in the sea who died, you know, in their way to to get from Turkey to Greece to to go to Europe, and they had no other option. The journey can be really dangerous, and, you know, these refugees are paying a lot of money just to escape the horrors that they face in their homelands. And aside from paying big sums of money, you know, they are under the danger and the mercy of, you know, human traffickers who treat them. I mean, there are many documented stories of refugees being tortured and beaten up and even killed by human traffickers. So, you know, what we always say is no one would put themselves and their kids in the sea if land was safer than that. That's their only option, you know. Behind you, there is death, and in front of you, there is the sea. And the only option is to ride the sea and try to survive. And that's why many refugees have no option but to do that, despite all the risks and despite, you know, risking their lives and the lives of their of their children. So the journey is really, really, is really dangerous. It's really risky. And, you know, that's why I invite a lot of Malaysians to read, you know, about the journey that refugees have to take to come here, especially the Rohingya refugees. And, you know, they have, I I always invite them to, to listen and read with an open heart and open ears to understand people's struggle and not just listen to politicians and the things they try to say in the media. Now, what happens once, let's let's say we talk about boats, right? Um, or, or even planes for that matter, in a country like Malaysia, where we haven't ratified the UN Refugee Convention. Malaysia, some more often than not, takes a very hard stance against refugee, especially in recent years. So, when a boat arrives at a shore, you know, on on the Malaysian shores, what happens next? Um, where do refugees go immediately after that? I mean, if they are not caught by the Malaysian authorities who detain them indefinitely, by the way, there are refugees who have been in detention centers for years now without any charge, without any access to having a lawyer or Mm -hmm. access, you know, to talk to anyone, even UNHCR or any other organization that works with refugees and asylum seekers. If they are not caught by Malaysian authorities, I think most refugees, you know, they know know someone here, some of them. Mm -hmm. Others don't, like, you know, you have stories of refugees as young as five, as young as 10 years old, coming here by themselves just because their families couldn't afford for everyone to live. So, you know, they send the youngest one to survive and they have to trust strangers, you know, or somebody from their city or village to take the kid with them. So, I mean, once they get to the shores of Malaysia, they they need to find their own ways to places that they know that other refugees reside there, you know, and yeah. that's and that's why you know this we always say that this fear of mistreatment and this fear of the violence that the Malaysian government shows towards refugees sometimes this is what drives refugees to hide this is what drives them to stay in the same place you see them in one place and we always have the fear of that you know staying in one place might turn into a ghetto you know and that's not something refugees or or, you know, Malaysia wants. And and yeah, I mean, once you get to the shores, if you're not caught by the authorities, your only option is to find your way around and, you know, 
go to places where other refugees from your country or, you know, for, who speak your language stay. And, you know, always a lot of them go to UNHCR next, like the next step for refugees right. in Malaysia is to register themselves in UNHCR. And I mean, uh, the process is kind of the same. You just go to UNHCR's office in Kuala Lumpur and, you know, you show them the documents that you have, like a passport, you know, any papers that prove who you are. I mean, for the Hindias, it's, it's, it's more difficult because, you know, they don't have the privilege of having passports or any of those documents. So the only option for them is to go to UNHCR and register themselves as refugees there. And, and then the process takes time. It takes a couple of months to one year to get mm -hmm. the UNHCR card. That card is just like, it's just an ID card that you get from you, the UN Refugee Agency. It, I mean, it doesn't offer practically any protection, hmm. but it's still a document that, you know, refugees need to have with them. It's still safer than being, you know, undocumented at all. Right. And you talk about, you know, how refugees, um, a lot of them get caught immediately. Um, some of them, um, those that are fortunate, they manage to find, let's say, whether it's uh, family members, someone they know, friends of friends, and, and so on and so forth. Where do they live? And, and what are the living conditions of refugees in Malaysia like? I mean, the majority of refugees are living in the Klang Valley area, like Kuala Lumpur and Slangor. Right. Uh, I mean, you have refugee communities in Penang, you have refugee communities in Kedah and in other in other states, but the majority of them live in the Klang Valley. I mean, refugees tend to live in, just like, you know, a lot of migrants in other places, they tend to live in areas next to each other. And I think that that comes from the fact that they don't feel safe in Malaysia for very valid reasons. You know, they're not recognized by law. They they're always in under the risk of being detained or being arrested. And that's, you know, that fears leads them to staying, you know, in places close to each other. And there's always the language barrier. You know, some refugees don't speak Malay or don't speak right. English very well. And, you know, they want to stay in areas close to their people who speak their languages. And, you know, it's for, for many of them, it's safer to work in those areas because, you know, as I mentioned before, they are not recognized by local laws. So working as a refugee puts you under the risk of being detained and arrested. Again, you know, I don't want to enforce the stereotype that refugees are the same. They stay, you mm -hmm. know, they are just one group. But again, they have very valid reasons for staying in areas where other refugees are staying. I think the blame in that all falls in the government, not the refugees themselves. Because if refugees felt safe to go out there and live in different places and you know, work and seek opportunities in other parts of Malaysia, they would, but they don't have that option. They don't have that privilege because the government is depriving them of it. Mm -hmm. And what are the living conditions generally like? Or is, does that differ from refugee to refugee as well? I mean, it is different. It's mm -hmm. Absolutely, we can't say. But like data shows that majority of refugees are not having good life in Malaysia for, for, for different reasons. First of all, they're not allowed to work legally. And this makes finding work really, really hard. And when they do find working opportunities in different places, they're always, you know, risking exploitation and by employers, they're risking abuse in their workplace. And, you know, as refugees, they can't report 
these you know human rights violations against them in the workplace because they're not supposed to be working in the first place and this makes it really hard for refugees to survive you know they're not allowed to access formal education they're not allowed to work and you know when you go when you need healthcare you pay 50% of what foreigners do right which is sometimes very expensive for refugees you know especially if you have to do surgery or something very urgent sometimes it gets to thousands of ringgits and refugees can't afford that so i mean the living circumstances are absolutely different from one refugee to the other it's better some i mean me myself i'm i'm very privileged hmm. you know because of because you know I, i had opportunity to get good education is that's a privilege that not all refugees get right. in their homelands especially those you know you know the young who have to leave when they're in you know as children or if they are young people like teenagers and they come here and and it's very tough for them here to seek education or complete their education because you know they're not allowed to access schools and universities in malaysia and the only option is for education is community schools and you know these community schools have very limited funds they have very limited capacity and yeah that makes it really hard for refugees in all aspects of life like working and education healthcare so it's very difficult for refugees in malaysia to survive but yet you know they keep trying very hard and and that's the yeah the message we we try always to send to malaysians that you know if refugees were seeking opportunities they wouldn't come to malaysia but the only option they had is to come to malaysia they didn't have an option on the show with me today is wild karsifi he's a refugee and journalist after the break i ask him why refugees should be given the chance to assimilate in malaysia keep it here on today i learned bfm 89.9 Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Wael Karsifi. He's a refugee and journalist. And in light of World Refugee Day 2022, Wael is sharing what it means to be a refugee. So Wael, we often talk about the difficulty for a refugee when it comes to access to healthcare um, and education and so on and so forth. So when it comes to healthcare, right, help me understand when we say difficult, um, when we say a lack of access, what does that actually mean first of all there's a safety aspect of it right a lot of refugees especially the ones for example who are not yet you know documented by UNHCR they don't have UNHCR card they are scared of going to hospitals for valid reasons because absolutely you know, last year the government ordered doctors in many government hospitals to report undocumented migrants who come to hospitals in seeking of medical help and this is a very valid reason why a lot of refugees are scared of going to hospitals or seeking especially in the covid-19 pandemic we saw that we saw you know we saw the government arresting undocumented migrants who went out you know to get the vaccines or who went out to do covid tests and you know this intensified the fears that refugees and asylum seekers have in malaysia so this is a big part of access you know if you don't feel safe to go and seek healthcare then there's a big problem with the access to healthcare second of all is the financial aspect of it it's expensive you know for refugees because you know locals 
what locals pay, what Malaysians pay is way, way, is maybe 10 times lower than what a refugee, than what a foreigner has to pay is different. And the refugees have to pay 50%. They get only 50% if they have UNHCR card of what foreigners pay. So it's still very expensive for them, especially as you said, if someone is pregnant, they have, you know, to give labor. And if they have to go through surgery, it becomes sometimes thousands of ringgits and you know, with the lack of work opportunities and the lack of education opportunities to give them better, you know, work opportunities in Malaysia, most refugees can't afford healthcare. Right. They can't afford mental health. That's also a very important thing that, a very important conversation that we need to have. Refugees can't afford mental health in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And it's the same for a lot of Malaysians, to, to be clear. I'm just saying that it's way harder for refugees Absolutely. Absolutely. to afford mental health. And despite, you know, like last year, there was a study by, you know, the scientific magazine, The Lancet. And, you know, the results showed that 43% of refugees suffer from mental disorders like depression and anxiety and other, you know, other mental disorders. And this shows the big need for mental health among refugees, which is something they can't afford. Right. And and so what does that mean? Um, you know, we can't afford it. What happens if someone has severe depression? Or like I mentioned, what happens if someone gets pregnant? Then how does the situation get dealt with? There are different organizations that work with right. refugees on the ground, different, you know, activists and all, and they have to seek help by fundraising, you know, from the public or, Mm -hmm. you know, from inside Malaysia, many Malaysians do help with those things. But, but again, this is not a sustainable solution. You know, you can't always depend on public funding. You can't always depend on NGOs. There needs to be a sustainable solution through, you know, through legislation, through law, you know, to, to afford refugees and access to work and access to healthcare and access to other um, to other basic human rights, to be honest, um, these are basic human rights and refugees are deprived of them in Malaysia. There's also this aspect of detention centres which you brought up earlier. What are situations in detention centres like? And more than that, right, um, you mentioned earlier that people are kept in, um, some many refugees are kept in detention centres for years and years. Um, sometimes you can even go up to a decade or more. What is the end goal of the detention centers? Because we've talked about, yes, the the the, the conditions of live, uh, detention centers being really, really subpar or terrible. Um, and, and what is the end goal of keeping refugees in detention centers year after year after year? I think I think the government doesn't have a strategy by doing that. They just right. want to punish punish refugees for coming here. I'm not, I'm not just talking about the current government. I'm talking about different government. Absolutely. The they all showed hostility towards refugees. They don't want refugees to come here. They don't want migrants to come, in, to come here. Despite the fact that Malaysia has always depended on migrants and the history of Malaysia is a history of migration, you know, is something they are trying to deny, something they're trying to punish people for seeking safety you know by coming to malaysia so i don't i don't think there's a plan behind it i think the goal is just to punish people and terrify refugees from coming to malaysia and you know when we talk about circumstances and detention centers i think is is very known to people that i mean i can only describe it by saying it's inhuman 
it's it's horrible. I mean, I spoke to many refugees who have been detained. One of them was was detained when he was only 13 or, or 14, I think. He was a child. He was working in a restaurant. He was kept for over 60 days in detention centers. And, you know, all types of human rights violations right. happen in those detention centers for no reason. You know, like refugees there are not allowed to talk to anyone. They are not allowed access to a lawyer to defend themselves. They're not charged with any, they're not charged with anything. Like you don't stand in front of court and you're charged with anything. You're just detained indefinitely, you know? Right. And if you are lucky, UNSCR, if you're documented by UNSCR, you, they could get access to detention centers, which is now very difficult because, you know, the Pakistan Harapan government in 2019 blocked UNSCR from access to detention centers. And this is why I'm saying we're talking about different governments and not just one government, because even the Pakistan Harapan government that promised, you know, to offer refugees help and promised to help refugees work legally in Malaysia, they did never delivered on that promise. And on top of that, they blocked UNSCR from accessing detention centers. So since 2019, UNSCR doesn't have access to those centers, and they don't know how many refugees and asylum seekers are inside of them. Do refugees face a lot of xenophobia in Malaysia? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's, I mean, if you just monitor like, you know, social media like Facebook and, and Twitter, you can see that there's a huge xenophobic hate towards refugees and migrants. And again, especially the Rohingya refugees. Because, you know, in 2020, there was this fake news campaign that claimed that Rohingya refugees were asking for citizenship in Malaysia, which is absolutely fake news and was debunked mm-hmm. by many, by many, you know, journalists in Malaysia. And I mean, Reuters did a big investigation on a campaign, an organized campaign to spread hate toward Rohingya refugees in Malaysia. So I think there's hate against migrants and refugees in Malaysia. It ha- it existed for decades. You know, it's not just it's not just, it didn't start it with the refugee wave in the last seven to, to 10 years. It's way low, it's way older than that. It, start, it started, I think, since the independence of Malaysia. I mean, hate is not just aimed at refugees, it's also aimed at racial minorities. And I think it all comes from that, from the fact that, you know, many politicians and many groups benefit from this racial conversation and benefit from these racial politics. Right. And I think one important point is refugees don't fit into the narrative that Malaysia is three big races living together. You know, refugees don't fit into that conversation because refugees come from different races, different cultures, different languages. And they don't fit into that, you know, that picture that many politicians tried and governments tried, you know, to to market through over the years, not just in Malaysia, but outside of Malaysia, that Malaysia, you know, is three big groups living in harmony together. And refugees and migrants don't fit into that picture. And that's why for many politicians, offering refugees and migrants an opportunity to be part of the Malaysian society, to live here normally, is not an option they want to take because it doesn't fit their their agenda. No refugee has it easy, but are some refugees, um, some refugees from certain communities, do they face 
harsher discrimination compared to other refugees because of their skin color or whatever else it may be? 100%. I mean, mm -hmm. just as I said before, Rohingya, Rohingya refugees face the worst xenophobia and worst hate campaign in Malaysia. And I think color plays a role in that. Absolutely. I think the same happens for African refugees in Malaysia because of the color of their skin, because colorism is very persistent in Malaysia. And one can see that clearly there is hate towards black and dark people in Malaysia. Right. And not just, you know, not just migrants like from Bangladesh or other South Asian countries. There is also hate toward Malaysian Indians, you know, mm -hmm. because of their skin color. And yeah, I think colorism is very strong in Malaysia. And that plays a role in the way that a refugee is perceived because for many people, when you say refugee, the stereotypical image in their head is someone with a dark skin. And, you know, they always see these pictures of in the media about refugees being detained or, you know, uh, like gathered together in groups and sitting on the ground in front of immigration officers. And this is the picture that I think the media played a negative role in, in you know, planting this picture in the heads of many Malaysians. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely color, there is a stereotypical image of what a refugee is. And that causes the hate towards the Rohingyas because of the color of their skin. While do you think refugees should be given the chance to assimilate into our communities, study, work, and even pay taxes here in Malaysia? I'm going to ask you a question. Let me take your role for one second. Right. I mean, when somebody asks that question, it's a valid question. But the thing, the only thing that comes to my mind is, is an opposite question. Do you think Malaysians in Australia should be, for example, allowed to work and pay taxes? Yes, right. Absolutely. Because you know their 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 nationality doesn't matter. They're yeah. human beings, and they have a right to be there. Yes. And I think it's the same for refugees. This right. is why, as you mentioned before, people see refugees as outsiders, as aliens. You know. And again, what we want people to think of as refugees are human beings and they come from different, you know, experiences and different cultures. And yes, of course, they have they have a right. I don't think it should be allowed or not. Every human being have a right to exist where, wherever they feel safe. And every human right has the right to work and have a right to access healthcare and access education. And that's why I think refugees deserve the right to have all those things in Malaysia. I think, you know, refugees, and I hate to look at it in the way of contribution because a lot of times it's, it's discussed in the a very capitalist way of, you know, what do they contribute right. to the economy? But then again, sometimes there's no escape from this point. And, and even if we want to look at it from that very pragmatic capitalist way, refugees are already contributing to, to the local economy, and that is proved by data and research. And there have been done two big researches by Ideas Malaysia, and and it proves that refugees can can contribute millions of ringgits by paying taxes if they're allowed to work legally in Malaysia. Even if we look at it from a very capitalist way, it's beneficial to Malaysia, not just to refugees. But again, I don't like looking at that way. I look at it from a human rights perspective, and I... I believe every human right deserves to be safe in a place where they feel safe and they deserve to have their basic human rights, such as work and healthcare and education. I think that is really, really well said. While what are some of the policy changes that need to be made 
by by Malaysia with regard to refugee rights? I mean the like the perfect scenario, which is which I don't think is very possible right now, is Malaysia signing the Refugee Convention and the Refugee Protocol of 1967, you know, and the Refugee Convention. Uh, but I don't think that is, personally, I don't think that is possible right now. I think it's a very big step that Malaysia is not ready for yet. But I think what can be achievable now is the government deciding on a policy to hire refugees. There have been conversation about this. Early this year, you know, the Human Resources Ministry announced that they are planning, they have a committee who will come out with a plan to offer refugees the legal right to work in Malaysia. And I think that's a very good step if it happens. But again, it's not the first time the government talks about this. They have been talking about this since the 2018 general elections. And again, I need to mention Pakistan Harpen Alliance because when in their manifesto, they promised to offer refugees the right to work. And that promise was never delivered. And then, you know, during Mohaddin Yassin's government, they also said they have a committee that will work on offering refugees the right to work. It was never done. And now we have a new government under, you know, Smile Sabri. And, and again, the same conversation is happening. So we hope that it could happen. I think it's a very achievable thing. And I think it's a very good step if it happens. I think that's a good step to start the way of, you know, granting refugees their basic human rights. What would happen if, let's say, Malaysia does decide to sign the UN Refugee Con- Convention? What difference is that going to make? Because we do know that, you know, you can sign whatever international treaties that you want and, and not practice that, you know, when it comes to the legal side of things within your country itself. Um, what do you think signing the UN Refugee Convention would achieve? Yes, again, that you mentioned, it depends on, you know, what you practice from what you sign, right? Mm-hmm. And if they do sign them, if they do deliver on, you know, the the efforts that you have to do when you sign those conventions. First of all, refugees will have an official documentation as refugees in Malaysia. They will be recognized by law. And that recognition will lead, you know, to granting them the rights of refugees, refugees, in countries that are assigned to refugee convention, they have a right to work. They have a right to access healthcare. They have a right uh, to be granted, you know, residency in the countries. Depends, you know, depend on the local laws. But you have access to that. You have a way to get that. Uh, I mean, in some nas- in some countries, you have the right to be a citizen. I don't think that is possible in Malaysia for different political and cultural reasons, I think it's very difficult. But but again, you know, signing those conventions can change the reality of refugees 180 degrees. It's going to be a different world because now they have a legal right to access to all those human rights. And, you know, they can travel. They, ha- they can have their mobility rights back, which is something we always tend to forget when we talk about refugees. Refugees are deprived of their mobility rights, you know, like even for most refugees, it's difficult to travel from West Malaysia to East Malaysia, like Sabah and Sarawak, mm-hmm. because of, you know, documentation, passports and, and you know, different documents. But, you know, if, if you are a refugee, a recognized refugee in Malaysia, for example, in a perfect scenario, you can travel outside, you know, 
you can see, I mean, refugees are deprived of seeing their family members for years, decades sometimes. And, and you know, if you, if you, if you recognize as a refugee, you can consider Malaysia your home now. You can travel. And this is, this is a, this is a big myth that people think refugees are not, you know, are not allowed to travel or should not be allowed to travel. And that, that is wrong, you know, even, even in like organizations that deal with refugees, they understand that refugees sometimes they can even go back to their home countries in some, st- in some stances, you know, and they can come back to the country that they seek asylum in. It's, it's a very complicated issue. But I think signing those conventions would absolutely change the reality of refugees 100, you know, 180 degrees. It, it would change completely because, again, now you have a legal right to seek, you know, your basic human rights, such as work and education and healthcare and traveling mobility rights. Right. All right. Before we wrap this conversation, while um, in light of World Refugee Day 2022, would you have a final message for us? Well, I mean, my final message to everyone listening, Malaysian or not, refugee or not, is, you know, is solidarity and empathy. We need to look at each other as human beings away from labels, away from religion and gender and nationality. I think if we if we try to do that, if we try to look at other people and listen to their stories, and here's the uh, something I want to say to Malaysians who never spoke to a refugee, try to speak to one, you know, try to sit down with the refugee and talk to them. And maybe, maybe that will change the ideas that, you know, media and politicians are trying to feed you about refugees. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Wael Karsifi. He's a refugee and a journalist. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.